I always say that a room has to have five different things, and that's colour, craft, character, curation, and what was the other thing? I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember now. The fifth thing. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season six of Bookshelfie, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. Join me and my incredible guests as we talk about the books you'll be adding to your 2023 reading list. Kit Kemp, MBE, is a British interior designer and founder and creative director of Firmdale Hotels and the Kit Kemp Design Studio. Kit's signature style combines traditional elements with contemporary flair, resulting in spaces that are both inviting and visually striking. She's known for her blend of bold patterns, vibrant colours and carefully curated artwork and textiles and for being a highly respected champion of British art, craft and sculpture. Kit has won many awards, including House and Garden's Hotel Designer of the Year and CN Traveller's Best Hotel in the World for Design. She's also a published author of four books, including A Living Space and her latest book, Design Secrets, which offers readers valuable inspiration and practical tips for bringing their own distinctive style into their spaces. And we're delighted to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Kit. Thank you. It's so lovely to have you with all of your books that you're bringing today <laughs> in front of you. They're spread across our table. It, it feels... Very aesthetically pleasing. I'm always fascinated by the ways that we can incorporate books into the design of our spaces. That's something that's important to you. It's very important. And I know that some designers will look upon music. But for me, and to get to know a client or a different interior or space, it's all about the books. Mm -hmm. I think it tells so much about the character. And I think one wonderful thing about growing up is being able to afford a hardback book. It is. Oh, you know what? It was like a dream to one day be able to have bookshelves with hardback books mm. on them in your own house. Absolutely. You feel like you've made it. <laughs> you've grown up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. What does your bookshelf look like in your own home? Well, we love books. And in fact, um, I've got to make a space to make a door go through. And of course, I come from a, a family who love books. My mother never had a bedside table. It was just books, mm. one above, above the other. But she, we would never be a allowed to put a cup of tea or rest anything on a book. To her, they were rather sacred. Sacrilege. Mm. And have you adopted that same um, sentiment towards the books? That, Not that quite, because as a designer, we often use an ottoman. And to put on the ottoman, there are lots of different books that go on the top. And I'm afraid my mother would tell me off, but I actually put cups of tea on them. <laughs> you know what? I always think if, if a book's been well thumbed, if it's got ring marks where the coffee or the tea has been placed it means it's been loved yes that's true and there are many loved books in our house what sort of books do you gravitate towards well I love books pastoral books about the country I love biographies but actually at the end of the day I actually adore a good yarn and a really good story mm. it doesn't matter whether it's historically way in the past or or contemporary and in fact the five books that I've chosen range I think from 1499 yeah. up to 19 <laughs> to, or to 2014 <laughs> and you mentioned that that your your mother was a, a big reader mm. um growing up did you 
Did you adopt that? Did she instill that love of reading in, in you in a young age? Very much so. Um, she had a, a most beautiful voice, but uh, so she, she read things beautifully to us as well. And I think she introduced me to my first favourite book, which I continue to read off and on right to this day. And the author was Mary Webb, who was brought up in Shropshire. And it's quite interesting because her books are actually written in dialect, which could put you off to begin with. But when you get into that lilting prose and the way that she writes so beautifully um, about the countryside and about the countryside of many years ago, maybe in the time of Waterloo, you're completely drawn in. Well, Mary Webb's Precious Bane is your first bookshelfy book that you've brought today. Prudence San was born with a cleft palate, her precious bane, for which she is persecuted as a witch by her superstitious neighbours in her Shropshire village. Hiding from daily ridicule, she takes refuge in the wild countryside and in her love of Kester Woodseaves, the weaver. As Kester gradually discerns Prue's true beauty, her brother Gideon is meanwhile tragically driven out of harmony with the natural world. So this is a book that you said you've read off and on for your whole life, pretty much. Yes. Why do you love it so much? Um, It's beside my bed. And first of all, it has really beautiful woodcuts in it by an artist called Norman Keppel. And they're in black and white, and they're so descriptive and so simple at the same time. But I love Prue because she was born with this cleft palate, and all she wants to do is to be accepted by everybody. But at every turn, she's turned away, really, so her life is quite difficult. But I love the romance of Kester, who is her true love at the end of the day, who's the weaver. And he goes from village to village so that when someone's going to get married, they have a weaving session in the house where all the local women come in and they sit and weave together. And then they're looking at Kester, who's the weaver and sort of secretly rather fancying him in a way. (laughs) And Prue being so shy is always in the background and uh, worked so hard by her brother and a poor landscape. But she does learn to read and write and Bigaldi is the local wizard and he has taught her to read and write but at the same time he's doing extraordinary things like telling the local gentry that he can raise Venus and uh, raising Venus is is, um, he wanted his daughter to be the subject of that and of course she's Gideon's true love and he won't allow her to do it so Prue ends up being this person that Bigaldi uses but it's so extraordinary the whole story Story. There's so much pastoral simpleness, but superstition. And it's at a time where people almost never moved out of the village mm. or the valley that they lived in. And so the fact that a crow flies overhead might mean 40 days of bad luck. Prudence, the main character in the book, is, is different, um, like you mentioned there, to others in her village and eventually finds power in that difference. Something that I think we can and should all celebrate did you ever feel like an outsider growing up? Were there any um, were there any similarities between you reading that book at the age of ten and and, and Prue, this character on the pages that you just couldn't get enough of? Yes, she was always an outsider. I suppose living outside a village and um, in the countryside as we did, you you are on the outside. But also, um, you know, sort of growing up and having one daughter who's um, slightly disabled. 
And if you are on the outside, things can turn against you so quickly. And uh, what you think uh, are a happy, closed community suddenly can turn round and things can work against you. And this book is concerned with the power of the natural world, the beauty of it, but also the, the impact of it. How do you stay in balance with nature and make time for it? Because I know you said you came today from South Cairn, so you, you're, in, you're in London now, having come from outside of a village. How, where is your harmony with the natural world? Well, it's very difficult when you come to London and you stand in a park and you can hear the cars yeah. all the way around the edge of it. It takes a long time to get, to, get used to it. But for me, I had such destiny and I had such ambition and a sort of arrogance that I had to get out of my village and away to achieve what I wanted to achieve, really. When it comes to that ambition, that drive, that, that need to achieve something, where did it come from? Tell us about your journey into interior design. Well, I started off basically with an auctioneer to begin with. So I was looking at scale and balance and, and, and people's junk and antiques and things like that. And then I worked for an architect. So I just made the tea and went round with a, a tape measure. <laughs> <laughs> started at the bottom. But uh, he was Polish, actually, and a real character. We'd go into the attic of a house and he'd see some fungi like a mushroom and he'd pick it up and stick it in his mouth and eat it. And we'd think, oh, my God, he's going to die. And he'd say, ah, mushlaki, the best mushroom. <laughs> and he had come sort of via Siberia during the war down through Palestine before he became an architect. So he was a man who lived with nature. And so I felt very much at home with him. <laughs> and where did that creativity come from that has become such a, a cornerstone of your success? Was your family creative? Maybe not so. Well, actually, my father was quite creative, actually. He was always inventing things that never quite came off. <laughs> but um, I think you've either got it or you haven't got it, and it's going to creep out. But, you know, also, I think if you're brought up very much on your, to your own devices in your own space, then you have that space in your head and that creativity. You're creating your own world. And your style is so unique, such such beautiful rooms, spaces that you've created over the course of your career. Where do you think that style comes from? We've talked about difference, we've talked about uniqueness. How does that then translate into your work? I think it's quite joyful. It's colourful. Yeah. And um, most people seem to be afraid of colour, but it's colour, texture. I always say that a room has to have five different things, and that's colour, craft, character, curation, and what was the other thing? I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember now. The fifth thing. <laughs> and um, with, with all those things, if it's curated well, if it's got the colour, if it's got the character, if it's got the craft, it's going to speak for itself. And I like things that are homemade in a room. I don't want it to look as if it's absolutely professionally done and smooth and shiny so you sort of slip to the floor from every surface. I love texture. Maybe that fifth thing can just be that je ne sais quoi, that little <laughs> thing that you have that no one else does that's maybe a bit weird, maybe a bit wonderful, but it's it's you. I love when you can tell a room is, is that person. Yeah, well, I love it. I, I mean, I love to see other people's interiors yeah. because I want to see their character. Yeah. I want to see something that they've made themselves or something which is truly about them. And, and that's nothing to do with... Um, I mean, so many homes are, are, are so tasteful that they're totally unmemorable. 
Mm, that's so true. Mm. Yeah, I mean, many would, would call my home a monument to miscellanea. <laughs> <laughs> Big collector of junk. Love colour, lots of clashing, but I like to think, I think we're on the same page. Good. <laughs> Your second Bookshelfy book kit is Tracy Chevalier's The Lady and the Unicorn. Mm-hmm. It's 1490, we said we were going right back. <laughs> Paris and a shrewd French nobleman commissions six lavish tapestries celebrating his rising status at court. He hires the charismatic, arrogant and sublimely talented Nicolas des Annonsons uh, to design them. Nicolas, Nicolas, creates havoc among the women in the house. The results change all their lives, <laughs> lives that have been captured in the tapestries for those who know where to look. Can you tell us a bit about this book? Well, Tracy Chevalier, the the author, um, she, I met her because she has done some work for Fine Cell Work, which is um, it's a charity which I've been involved with. But Tracy always, if you look at her books, they're always somewhere something about textiles mm. and things made by hand. Uh, but The Lady and the Unicorn is uh, a book which I feel is her best. And it's talking about making these tapestries in Belgian and the blind daughter, how he, uh, Nicolas, is a sort of, you hear of a femme fatale, he's a sort of homme fatale, <laughs> and all the women <laughs> fall for him. But at the same time, you're learning about what it was like to live at that time, what it was like to be an artist, to be a craftsman, to be a maker at that time. And um, it's you, you start on the first page and suddenly you're on page 100 before you even realise it. And that's the sign to me of the, the best sort of book. Mm. What is it that brings it so alive? What is it that makes it such a page turner? You're, you're immediately drawn in by all the characters. They're completely authentic. And Nicholas is, is young and feisty loving women. Mm. He absolutely adores women, doesn't treat them particularly well. But at the same time, there's a goodness in there somewhere. And also, again, it's it's about learning his craft. He was actually a miniaturist in court. And why they chose him to do these huge, lavish tapestries, he himself is, is surprised. But he is drawn into that occasion. And in fact, it's probably his very best work, which he sees through by going to Belgium and coming to the rescue of the wonderful blind daughter. And uh, when they were making Woad, you you had to use a lot of urine, actually, which meant that the woad maker smelt terrible. And if you're blind, then your other senses really come to the fore. And they were making her marry him, this other man. And so good old Nicholas comes along and actually saves the day. We and Woad, classic combination. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the sumptuousness and the sensorial nature of the way this is written, it really makes it so vivid, brings it off the page, like these textiles, like these textures. Mm. And you're known for your rich, boldly patterned fabrics, using the spaces you design, your, your colours. Have you always been interested in textiles? Always. It's always been my first love. And uh, my rooms are brought together <clears throat> by textiles. But it's uh, I love, actually, tapestries but in fact I love tapestries before the needlepoint goes on because before uh, they are drawn and it's like a huge painting 
And if you looked at the old tapestries that have numbers on them, and the numbers were on all the different colours because that was going to be the colour of the thread. And I always find that so fascinating. And if ever I can find what they would call old cartoons, they are the things that I would hang on the walls rather than the heavy tapestries themselves. Yeah. My grandma used to do tapestry. Did she? And that, just the way you just described it really it's very nostalgic. It takes me back because I remember um, going into the living room and she'd be she'd have she'd have it drawn out on the fabric and the the little numbers of what she was <laughs> going to be doing in each section. I must have been so small a long time ago, but that's it's such an evocative image. It is that you isn't just it? painted, yeah. uh, and it, it 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 keeps moving. All of these techniques um, and these styles will keep evolving. How do you stay inspired and continue to innovate in an industry that is constantly evolving? Where do you? draw inspiration from? Well, I have been copied and I always think that's just, uh, um, that's great. I don't mind because what it means is that I've got to go on and do something new. But in fact, there is always something new. And that's what I love about also collaborating with others. And I always say that you you shouldn't be, uh, from the first moment, you shouldn't, you should have a picture of what you're trying to achieve. But actually, uh, your finished room, your finished space, your finished area should be a lot better than your original first idea because it's an organic path and along the way there will be things that come in the excitement of it so the finished piece is better than the original idea and over the last 10 years you've written four books what made you want to try and distill your creative process into the written word in this way and to talk to sort of try and help others to find their own style Well, because I think that we're always told what to do all the time. There's always this one way that you're meant to achieve and your one way that and and also people with designer names, they think it's okay if it's designed by a designer name. Well, I'm kind of anti-designer name and anti-brand. And I love that craftiness of it all. And craft was always the sort of little sister to art. And I love the way craft in families goes from generation to generation. So you get the grandfather who's a potter, his wife is, his mother, his daughter, his sister, his brother-in-law. And you can make the same thing over and over. But if it is made by hand and not on a production line, it's always different. And it tells you so much about the hand of the craftsman who's making it. And to me, that's always been much more important than the glossiness of Mm. anything else. How did you find turning your hand to writing? I love writing and it was always something that I was actually better at at school than almost anything else because I was left-handed, so quite clumsy. And so actually doing needlepoint and things like that was always much harder for me. And um, writing was always something which was so good. I had a... Uh, a wonderful teacher, Mrs. Beach, who ran away to Gretna Green at the age of 15 to marry her husband. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So she was a great woman. And uh, I mean, I knew her throughout my my life. So she always used to sort of help me, but with writing was, was a good thing. But you know, my books are coffee table books. They're not like the books that I've chosen today. Those are proper books. (laughs) But your work tells a story, whether it is on mm. the page or, or in the rooms. They each have their unique stories to tell. How can you explain how you approach 
storytelling through design? Well, it's funny because I always try and get the character of the room that I'm trying to do. And uh, we had to do something for the Wow House recently, which was in the design centre. And we decided that the character that owned it was called Mimi and she was a hat maker and Mm. she lived in an attic in Paris. And she would get all the most fashionable women in Paris tromping up the stairs to come to her attic room. And as soon as you've created this feel within the room, which is almost like a curation in itself, everything else becomes so much easier and flows. And I think a room does have to flow and it does have to tell a story. And it does have to have the character of the person who's living within it. And the possibilities are endless because as with life itself, there are always more stories to tell. Exactly. And we change as well. And and that's we change with the season. But I have to live with my rooms in the season. And then I know if it's a successful room that if it looks as great on a thundery day Mm. as it does in bright sunshine or in midwinter or those gusty autumn days, then, you know, it's, it's a success. Well, as there are always more stories to tell, we move on to your third (laughs) bookshelfy book, which is Wayward, Just Another Life to Live by Vashti Bunyan. In 1968, English singer-songwriter Vashti Bunyan took to the road with a horse, wagon, dog, guitar and her then partner. They made the long journey up the Outer Hebrides with romantic, idyllic notions, often coming up against harsh realities. Not simply a memoir, but also an emotional and explorative tale about finding purpose, living life and making the decisions that work for your own life. Why did this book touch you? You, you, you came in and actually you showed it to us. Everyone in the room was like, oh, we wanted to see this. Why is it so special? I loved Vashti Banyan for the first time that I, I heard her. And she was going to be the next Marianne Faithful, and her manager was Andrew Lug Oldham, who was Marianne Faithful's um, manager, and her first song was written for her by Mick Jagger and Keith Richard, and it was a dismal failure. Nobody bothered about her, and her life sort of went sort of downhill from there, where she finally uh, left home and joined her boyfriend, who was an art student, and he was living in a tent under a tree. So they had no money and they were looking through a sort of hedge one day and they saw this cart behind. So they climbed through the hedge and um, it was an old baker's van. And they found, I think, someone called Alfie Ball who owned it and said, well, have you got a horse that goes with this cart? And he said, come back tomorrow morning. (laughs) That's you, Dave. (laughs) So they came back the the next morning and there was Betsy, this big round black bottom of this wonderful big cart horse. And anyway, they finally um, bought Betsy and the baker's van and went to see his art teacher going over London Bridge. And they couldn't get over how Betsy actually stopped at a red light, knew to go left (laughs) around roundabouts. And obviously, they didn't really know how to drive a a horse and cut, especially through London. Anyway, Betsy lost a shoe and they ended up going to a brewery in North London because that was the only place they knew where they would be able to change a shoe. And as they went in to see the blacksmith, he said, oh, 
That's Bess. I'd know Bess anywhere. I know those feet. And um, <laughs> Bess had been pulling at this sort of baker's van and was about 20 years old. They didn't realise that. But luckily, she knew exactly what she was about. Um, and they went to visit Donovan in Bedfordshire, who lived in a place called Seagull's Rest. And he was starting a commune on an island off the Isle of Skye. And they decided, well, there was no other way, but they were going to get there by horse and cart. And so their journey started, <clears throat> which took about two years, I think. Yeah, I was going to say it's a long way. <laughs> <laughs> it is, by horse and cart. Yeah. Uh, but she started off as being very fragile, sort of nearly having a nervous breakdown. But, of course, suddenly on the road with absolutely nothing, no money, no resources, but looking after Bess and a dog called Blue, mm. she became a much stronger and stronger woman. And I also have not only read the book, but bought the audio book. And she has such a wonderful voice mm. and writes so... I think lots of people actually sort of acquire their personality. They become somebody else for the sake of the book and they miss out bits and put bits in so that they sound how they want to be. I just felt with Vashti, she was the real person. You got to really know her and love her. And the funny thing is, there's a huge gap of 30 years. And then and the, the records that she made were forgotten in the mists of time. But after about 30 years, she then decided to look herself up on the Internet, you know, which you can do. You can have a little Google, yeah. And <laughs> suddenly found out that she was a sort of cult sensation with her original LP that she had made. And somebody in Sacramento had said, I wonder whatever happened to Vashti Banyan? And suddenly she started to uh, try and find the original master of her music, mm. uh, master tapes, etc. And her life was renewed. You speak with such passion about <laughs> this book, about this story. It's a book about finding your own purpose, your freedom. How did it make you feel? Is this a book that tells a story that, that you relate to, finding that purpose, finding that freedom? Yes, she she didn't find it easy. She wasn't accepted. She was trying to find herself in situations where she was trying to toe the line. She was trying to be the perfect wife or, or whatever. And at every turn, she felt that she wasn't in control. And it, it's a story of how she brought that control finally into her mm. life. And she was an individual. She never gave up we so often give up on ideals, on things, because it's easier to go in that direction. Vashti never did, and I really respect her for that. What sort of challenges have you faced throughout your career? How have you overcome them? The thing is, I think it, ma it makes me a bit secretive, because if I say what I really want to do, how I want to achieve it, everybody says, oh, you can't do that. Right. So in a sense... You're kind of, you kind of do things in a sort of secretive way or in a roundabout way. And I think actually I was quite argumentative and really difficult and probably quite unemployable. So that meant that you had to kind of go it on your own. So it's just finding your way through and doing things like that and then finding you've got a few camp followers along the way and, and uh, achieving what you want to achieve. That tenacity, though, and that um, sticking to your guns, <laughs> which can sometimes be uh, manifested through arguments and, yeah. and the like, it, it also 
is a is a strong point. It's also an asset. Uh, have you found it's worked in your favour? You I mean you wouldn't be where you were if it wasn't for those things? No, that's right. I mean, I think there are certain things where you say, "I don't care what's happening on the outside. This is what I'm going to do." And it's almost the same it, it, with all of my work. Actually, you've got to wait until the end. You've got to wait until the completion. You've got to have the trust in what you're trying to achieve, and not have people halfway through mm. saying, "Oh, you can't." do that. That's not going to work. That colour's no good. Oh, nobody's going to stay here. I mean, we, we've designed whole hotels, which are new builds. And, and in the process, you can sit in what would be the brasserie or the restaurant and you can say to yourself, oh, my goodness, is anybody ever going to come? Is anybody going to want to have a meal in this room? Is anybody want to going to sleep in this bed? And, and so you can have huge question marks about what you're doing but you don't you just mm-hmm. plow on on that resolve <laughs> and exactly. that vision just wait <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you co-founded uh, Firmdale Hotels with your husband in the 1980s mm. what inspired you to do this and how has your vision for the brand changed over the years well, um, nobody took small hotels seriously when Tim and I started. And actually, Tim had his student accommodation when I met him, and which was great, actually, because there are fantastic barbecues every Friday night. And nice. it was all other students <laughs> that were there. And we had a great old time. But, you know, we decided that we would sort of upgrade the properties. And we managed to get the freehold on one in Dorset Square, which was the site of the first Lord's Cricket Ground. So immediately I had a lot of story that I could work on yeah. there. And it just had 37 bedrooms and everybody said it was not going to work. And uh, we approached, I think, 13 or 14 banks and they all said, forget it, mate. And, you know, we finally found one that didn't. Bless him. And uh, (laughs) so it started from there. It was rather like Topsy and just grew. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether shaken in a cocktail, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Check out baileys.com for our favourite Bailey's recipes. Let's talk now about your fourth book that you brought today, which is Restoration by Rose Tremaine. Feels quite apt, given what you were just speaking about. This is a dazzling tale of intrigue and rivalry set amidst the opulence of Stuart England from the prolific Women's Prize winning author. When a twist of fate delivers an ambitious young medical student to the court of King Charles II, Robert Merivale rises quickly, soon finding favour with the king. But when he falls in love with one of the king's mistresses, he transgresses the one rule that will cast him out from his newfound paradise. What drew you to this book? I love Restoration, but mainly because I love Rose Tremaine. She's a fearless and fiercely intelligent writer. There's nothing that she can't write about. And if you look at the different books that she's written from Sacred Country through to The Colour, then to Restoration, she is just extraordinary and the detail that she goes into. But I re-bought Restoration more recently and I was amazed that this story of Robert Merivelle, you know, <laughs> such a gorgeous name for such a sort of buffoon of a character full of human frailty. She said she, she wrote it 
as a sort of antidote to Thatcherism and that striving for richness. And uh, at one point, I think they say that luxury is suffocating your vital flame, they say to Robert Merivale, which is said to him by Pierce, who's his longtime friend. And I love the fact that it's Charles II, full of opulence, a king who is very obstinate but loves craft and he mm. loves people who do things well. And he inadvertently, purely by drinking too much wine and falling asleep and not doing anything, saves one of his King Charles spaniels. So goes it gets into the king's favour. But also he's a kind of buffoon. So he's there at the court and they all love him for his sort of excesses. And he's no oil painting but he has this gift, actually, of being um, a, a medical man. And from the age of nine, of sort of cutting out frogs and things, he's always been fascinated mm. by the anatomy of the human body. And in fact, it's that skill that at the end of the day saves him and brings him back into favour again. You talk about King Charles there being um, a huge fan of crap of craftsmanship. In, in your latest book, A Living Space, there's a Meet the Maker section mm. where you <laughs> talk about some of your favourite craftspeople. Can you give us a little flavour of that? Yes. I think the craftspeople that I have met in my life are some of my favourite people. Uh, from Melissa White, who's a very good friend who has painted wonderful large rooms for us, actually, in a huge scale. And she started off actually repainting uh, Shakespeare's sort of bedrooms, I think, in his house in in Stratford-upon-Avon. Uh, but she's a brilliant... She's actually wouldn't have been a great portrait artist, but she's like the travellers that in, in Tudor time would have gone to house to house and painted their walls. There would have been a few blots. And there would have been... It wouldn't have been beautiful. Mm. It would have been more of a crafted look. And then also, I also love the work of Martha Freud, um, who's a wonderful potter who works in porcelain so fine that the light can be seen through it and then another potter called Daniel Reynolds where his pots are just so stately and so mighty that they can hold their own in, in any room. I'm meeting these people all the time. And then others like Gareth Devonall-Smith, who's actually working in plasters and very much more contemporary things. He's making quite a few things for our new hotel, actually, um, who's exciting to meet. But then also people also like framers. I mean, the framers that I work with actually mm. in their own way are incredible craftsmen yeah. and they make just the simplest artwork look amazing. So I'm just lucky to be working with people like that. Well, you get to cross paths with so many <laughs> different people from so many different walks of life, creating so many different things, putting so much beauty into the world. Um, I know over the years you've collaborated with many brands as well, including um, designing tableware for Wedgwood and creating furniture and accessories for anthropology. How do you pick who you want to work with and which of those collabs have been the most fun? Well, I never like to say no. And uh, so if <laughs> I'm approached, yeah, I'll say yes. Because even if I think, oh, my goodness, now what am I going to do? I mean, that's, you know, the sort of butterflies in your tummy that you get before you start all these things, which actually you've just got to say, 
I'm going to overcome it and I'm going to do it mm. and I'm going to do my best and only the best is good enough. With Wedgwood, uh, I loved uh, the fact that it was such an English company and I was looking at their designs and I just thought, oh, you know, you can use the traditional things but actually do it in a slightly more contemporary way. And at the moment, I've just been working with Spode as well, which is a company which has been going since 1770. They've got Port Merion and their slipware as well, which is sort of pottery that I've been doing collections for. And at the moment, working with GP and J Baker doing a stripe collection, wallpapers, fabrics, planes, uh, you name it, I've been working and that will be coming out next spring. So there's always this sort of springboard of different things mm. happening. And they find me, I don't really find them. Talking about the opulence and mm. the craft that's depicted in restoration and all these different inputs you have when when you're making your, your, your works and your projects. Some of your projects have included designing such exceptional hotels, the likes of the Whitby Hotel, the Soho Hotel, the Ham Yard Hotel in London, as well as Crosby Street Hotel in New York City. How do you strike the balance between creating very visually striking spaces and also ensuring that they feel inviting and comfortable? Well, I always think it's the best thing when people say, did you have to do very much here? Because very often it's, it could be a new build. I mean, Ham Yard is a new build, Crosby, the Whitby, the new build, so Soho, actually. And if you come in and it looks like it's meant to be, then you don't have that flashiness of what I would call sort of high heels uh, of an interior. It just looks, it should look fascinating. It should make you smile, actually. I do think that interiors should have that element of of fun, of, of um, a lightweight feel and curiosity and wonderment, all those sort of things all rolled into one. So that's what I'm trying to achieve. The outside of the properties, most of ours kind of have crittle windows. So it looks good. It's almost like a classic look. It could be in um, a sort of French garret or it could look like a sort of Michelin petrol station <laughs> or it could look just sort of contemporary. And that means that I've got light flowing in because actually I always gravitate whenever I go into any room towards the window. So I'm always looking out rather than in and bringing the outside in rather than out. And I love gardens too because they stay alive, whereas a room kind of dies when you shut the door. It always needs life all the time and people and love. But after that, I can do exactly as I want. And, you know, we're women for a start. We're like butterflies. We can actually feel like doing one thing one day and another another day. Although when I am designing a building, I try and do it in one sort of mindset all the way through and try and just pile through it because there'll be that congruency towards uh, in, in every room and in every part of the building. Well, I know one of the tools for creating that fun, that wonderment that you've just described is colour, which brings us on to our fifth and final bookshelfy book today, which is Cassie St. Clair's The Secret Lives of Colour, <laughs> a fascinating cultural and social history of colours. Originally based on a column, St. Clair writes for L Decoration. Organised in a series of chapters by colour, this book tells the unusual stories of the 75 most fascinating shades, from Picasso's blue period to the charcoal on the cave walls at La Sceau, acid yellow to imperial purple. These surprising stories run like a bright thread across fashion and politics, art and war. 
Why did you pick this book? I think I chose it. I, first of all, I love Cassia Sinclair. I actually met her quite by chance. She was signing some books in the Ultimate Library, which is a, a bookshop in South Kensington. And uh, I just love talking to her. But The Secret Lives of Colour Every page is another story. Mm. It's quite incredible, all the different... I wish I could remember them all. But this is a book that you have beside your bed or beside your desk and you dip into it. Now, some people will dip into a recipe book because they love it. Um, And for me... It's this. It's The Secret Lives of Colour. And I could pick it up 365 days of the year and find something in it. I mean, if she could have, um, if she could become a dame of colour, I think that's what she should be because (laughs) I think she's just fabulous. (laughs) How do you approach adding colour to a space? Well, I think, uh, you know, rooms have to breathe. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I love a bold interior, but I don't like a frantic one. So, Rooms always should feel as if you never want to leave it. They should feel as if you want to show somebody else this room because you find it beautiful and exciting. Um, So uh, I will never use more than one sort of large scale pattern. And I will often have a block of colour and then I'll have maybe a very small geometric. But there should always be that feeling of calm. So I love sort of ploughing through and finding out the different names and then thinking, well, actually, if you look at the inside of a watermelon, you know, isn't it beautiful Mm. from those deeper pinks to that black seed and then those lighter colours and those softer greens and then that very dark green on the outside. I mean, that's nature. You can never beat nature. And if you get stuck, just kind of follow it. I think that's the advice that I will take as well in every future design pursuit. What are some of the most common interior design issues you come across? I'm actually interested to know. How do you tend to combat them? Because it's not always smooth sailing, surely? No, it's not smooth sailing. And it's about balance and scale. And I think that's what people get so wrong so often having too huge a sort of sofa that takes over the room and squashes everywhere, you know, as if it's kind of alive, like a sort of tomato or potato that's pulling out. And so uh, it, it is good to have a slightly stricter line going through it as well as being really, really comfortable. And also, you know, If you've got a small room, you don't have to have little sort of piddly things in it. You know, I hate furniture where I think I'm going to fall over all the legs and it's going to fall over with me. I do like a bit of... Of, of, of weight in a mm, room. A sturdy chunk. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, I mean, I remember at the Whitby just putting this uh, table that I'd bought from Josephine Ryan, which had whalebone legs to it. And suddenly that the whole room seemed to be lifting until that went in. And it was only sort of quite a, a small round table, but it gave a heftiness in that room. And I often think rooms do need almost like an ugly piece of furniture to, to sort of bed it down. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> in your book, Design Secrets, you actually include a colouring book section mm. uh, in which readers can reimagine some of your most iconic interiors. What did you want to achieve by including this? I think it's just so much fun. And my favourite bookshop in the world is Much Ado Books in Alfriston in East Sussex. And it's Kate and Nash who own the bookshop. It's an independent bookshop and they are the heart of that community. But they had an evening which was just colouring in. Oh, I love it. It's so therapeutic, so cathartic. I've got several colouring books and I love 
just painting for for my my relaxation. It's it's mm. perfect. It's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah. And I thought, well, if it's good enough for Kate and Nash, it's yeah. good enough for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just finally, Kit, are there any upcoming projects or, or books even uh, in the works that you can tell us about? Well, we're going to be opening the Warren Street Hotel, which is very near Ground Zero in Tribeca in mm. New York. And from the, it, it's a new build, and so we've been watching it going up. And from the top, you can just glancingly see the Hudson River. Wow. And it's, it's in a beautiful street. It's actually blue and yellow. So the sort of Ukrainian flag colours, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But it, that's the colour of the whole building. So it's it's such an exciting stage where you've got everything. You've you've collaborated with wonderful craftspeople, mm. with artists. You've put in as much as you can to make it. But you don't know yet because it hasn't actually been put inside the building. And it's meant to be opening February the 1st. So I'm actually starting to install in October, November. Okay. And that is going to be well, is it working or not? And and I've designed some fabulous sort of wallpapers, some wall hangings, uh, some fabrics, even paint colours, uh, which are our own. And so I'm just longing to see. It's like my little treasure box, like my little work of art. So exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I do have to ask you, Kit, just finally, if you had to choose one book from your list. I mean, they're all laid out in front of us as a favourite. It's hard and they look so nice there. Uh, which would it be and why? Oh, laws. Well, I mean, it's it's got to be between Mary Webb, mm. um, Precious Bane, uh, and actually Vashti Bunyan, Wayward, Just Another Life to Live, because she's so, um, well, just love her. But actually, at the end of the day, I have to go back to my mum's old favourite, which is uh, Mary Webb's Precious Bane. And by the way, the foreword uh, has been written by Stanley Baldwin, who wrote it from his desk in 10 Downing Street. He was the prime minister in 1928. And I just love the idea that he was the prime minister at that time. And yet he was writing and looking out of the window, thinking of pastoral thoughts of a time of Waterloo and way away from, you know, Parliament and yeah. the city of Westminster. And this book, I mean, it is. it looks so well-read, so thumbed. It's beautiful. It looks it's like embossed as well. <laughs> I can tell how special it is to you. Um, you said you, you read and reread it since the age of 10. So I'll let you put it back on your bedside table and carry on doing that. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a joy to chat to you about the books that you love. And to you. Thank you. I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.